Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. 30 years ago, the Berlin Wall was torn down by the people that it had divided for three decades. Berliners were euphoric. They were euphoric because the Berlin Wall was not merely a wall between East and West Berlin. It was the wall between East and West, period. It was the division of humanity into two different camps. And since names and labels are always changing and morphing, not to mention carrying decades of emotional baggage, let's reduce it to the most simple, emotionally neutral terms. On one side of the wall, the eastern side, were the collectivists, who believed that society takes precedent over the person. This collectivism was advertised as new and scientific, but the fact is that collectivism has been the default condition of humanity since humanity began. No, the actual newcomer to this clash of visions were the individualists on the Western side. The first government in history dedicated to the idea of the individual being more worthy of protection than the state had just turned 170 years old when the 40-year conflict known as the Cold War began. With the world in ruins after the defeat of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and Fascist Italy, these two ideologies had come into head-on conflict here in Berlin. It quickly became evident that Soviet leaders were not interested in a free, unified Germany and were determined to induce or force the Western powers to leave Berlin. Certainly, the American and Western people do not want war. But all history has taught us the grim lesson that no nation has ever been successful in avoiding the terrors of war by refusing to defend its rights, by attempting to placate aggression. From the East, the collectivist idea known as communism had slugged its way for mile after bloody mile, limping, then striding, and then running across Eastern Europe from the Nazi high watermark at Stalingrad. The individualist ideology arrived by sea, storming ashore on the beaches of Normandy, and after being staggered once or twice, was racing across Western Europe in a gasoline-fueled Red Ball Express. Now, part of this idea was known as capitalism, but that was merely the economic system. Politically, morally, economically, and practically, these were called the forces of freedom for the simple reason that that's what they were. And as the collectivist nightmare known as German National Socialism wavered, collapsed, and then imploded, these two antithetical ideologies met in Berlin, for it was in Berlin, where one world war had just ended, that the next world war was about to begin. Now, no one felt this divide more than the defeated Germans themselves. To them, the wall, this war of ideologies, had an immediacy not felt anywhere else. 
The nation and former capital Berlin split in half, one camp occupied by the armies of the Soviet Union and the others by the armies of the United States, Great Britain, and in a rather generous gesture, France. There was nothing theoretical about the Berlin Wall. It was cold, thick, high, and deadly, and it was a daily reminder to those on both sides of the sheer monumental luck the city block you lived on determining the fate of you, your children, and their children. No wonder they went at it with hammers and crowbars and even bare and bloody hands. But all of us who watched it happen felt that giddy, euphoric, mind-boggling sensation that had nothing to do with living in Berlin or even in Germany. We all cried when the wall came down because with it collapsed from our shoulders the death sentence that we'd all been living under. Because you cannot possibly understand how the world could be locked in a life and death struggle for half a century unless you can put yourself in the position of those of us who lived through it or lived through any part of it. You see, when the Berlin Wall fell, it began to dawn on me like it began to dawn on all of us. There was going to be an actual future, and despite all odds, we were going to live to see it. And this is what we saw. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. Iron Curtain has descended across the country. The only answer to communism is a massive offensive. Communism must be a system of international control and conformity. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Never give in. Never, never, never. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. If you had grown up during the Cold War like I did, then we both have something in common. It didn't matter which side you were on because what we all shared was universal. If you were a kid when I was a kid, the one thing you were pretty certain of is that you were never going to get to be an adult. My dad was a hotel manager, and so I grew up in Bermuda. That meant I never got subjected to those civil defense films that featured rows of bright-eyed American kids at their school desks who, an instant after the brilliant flash of light coming through the window, would immediately and automatically duck beneath their desks and cover their heads with school books. You remember, duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. I didn't have to deal with Saturday tests of the air raid siren, and I was nearly an adult when I first saw training films that showed what to do if you were caught in the open without time to get to a bomb shelter, namely lying on the grass and covering yourself with a newspaper. Now, I was old enough by that time to laugh off the absurdity of using a newspaper to protect you from the heat flash of a thermonuclear weapon. And I wasn't yet old enough to realize that wrapping yourself with a newspaper was, in fact, excellent advice, as was duck and cover. We'll get to all of that later. I didn't have to deal with any of that since I was not going to American public schools in American suburbs, but rather attending British public schools while growing up in one of the last of the British colonies. 
that nuclear war stuff barely registered at all. I was on an island in the middle of the Atlantic. It all had nothing to do with me. Now, of course, the fact that the 20-mile-long fishhook-shaped island that was my home at the time housed both a United States Air Force base at one end and a United States Naval Station at the other, well, that was all far too theoretical for me. But surely it was not lost on my parents that if the nightmare did come true, that tiny island and everything and everyone on it would soon become radioactive dust in the upper stratosphere. Unlike millions of other American kids back in the suburbs who, as a result of good luck or bad maybe, were not within the lethal blast radius of multiple Soviet thermonuclear warheads, those of us who grew up on a beach in Bermuda would not have had even the slimmest chance. You know, many times a day I get asked, Bill, you suave and handsome devil, how is it that you know so much about everything? And the answer is very simple. I have a very high level of confidence and a very low level of awareness. But there's some good news. I had to spend 25 years poking around trying to get all this stuff together, and mostly I just pretty much fake it, but you won't have to. There's a streaming service out called The Great Courses Plus. What it is is a bunch of unique perspectives from engaging experts in their fields on a wide range of topics. You know, there's subjects like American presidents. You can get one on exoplanets or travel photography, stress relief. And with The Great Courses, you have the flexibility to watch them or just listen to them just about anywhere. Now, just as one example, they've got a featured course out now called The Skeptic's Guide to American History. And if you've seen what they've been doing to history in the public sector out there, it's about time somebody asked questions like, was the Cold War inevitable? Yes. And you can get all kinds of in-depth, objective understanding about the past and how it still affects us today. Now, right now, they've got a special offer. You can get that awesome feeling of pride that I often feel, but you'll actually have earned yours if you sign up for The Great Courses Plus. They're offering my listeners this amazing deal. It's three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's $10 a month. But it's a limited time offer, so you're going to have to sign up today using my special URL. Get all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cold. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash cold. A few years ago, I met a guy who was about my age, which, to my amazement, happens to be 60. And like me, he was an American boy growing up overseas on an island. Only he was an Air Force brat. The island he grew up on was Okinawa, and his father was a B-52 pilot based at Kadena Air Force Base. He told me how he and his family would go to see movies at the base, just like any other family. Dad and mom and the kids and the popcorn and the sodas and the good, the bad and the ugly up there on the screen. But every now and then, in the middle of a Saturday afternoon double feature, let's say, all of a sudden, two huge red signs labeled alert would suddenly light up on either side of the screen. And before you even had a chance to look around, the movie had stopped, the lights had come up, and every grown man in the audience was climbing over the rows of seats, carefully pushing aside women and children, and running like hell for the exits. Kadena, you see, was America's most forward bomber base. Now, in a Soviet first strike decapitation attack, the nuclear-armed bomber ramp next to the theater would be where the very first missiles of World War III would land. Kadena would have about seven or eight minutes of warning. My friend went on to tell me that after the men had gone sprinting from the theater to their aircraft, the kids would walk out into the parking lot and grab their bikes. The B-52s on full alert were already climbing into the sky, each of their eight jet engines leaving black smudges as they clawed for altitude and especially distance. Because if this were the real deal, then the guys already in the sky would be the only ones with any chance at all. 
Now, knowing this, my friend told me how he and the rest of his eight and nine and 10-year-old friends would ride their bikes to the end of the runway, lay down on the grass, and watch the B-52s roar overhead. May as well be lying on the grass as anywhere else, because if this were the real deal, then Kadena and everything around it would be a puddle of molten glass. And if your 10-year-old life was about to end, you might as well enjoy the view. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all are subject, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. An Iron Curtain, he called it, on March 5th, 1946, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. Now, there was no mistaking the man speaking, of course. That bulldog language coming from the rounded, unimpressive, and slightly lisping voice. The leader of the only country to fight in World War II from the first day of it until the last had come to America in a strange and awful kind of disgrace. For while Britain had fought from the beginning to the end, he himself had not, being unceremoniously thrown out of office by the British nation he had just saved prior to the end of the war and the surrender of Japan. The safety of the world, ladies and gentlemen, requires a new unity in Europe from which no nation should be permanently outcast. This man, who'd warned the world of the rising threat from Adolf Hitler, the man mocked as a warmonger, a megalomaniac, and dangerously mentally unstable, the man who became Prime Minister of Great Britain on the day his one ally, France, fell to the Nazis, this greatest of all Englishmen who alone rallied the British Empire from the brink of defeat and utter ruin and went on to lead it into its finest hour. Winston Churchill, as usual, had deployed his most powerful weapon, his rhetorical genius with the English language, and described in one sentence the shape of the 50-year war that had not yet even really begun. Which is, of course, the real question, isn't it? The Cold War effectively ended when the Berlin Wall came down, but when did it begin? The collectivist Soviet superstate from the East, with its masses of infantry and tanks, never actually fired or received a single shot directly at or from the newest player on the world stage, a young American superpower whose navy ruled the oceans and whose Air Force owned the skies of the entire world. This bizarre, once-in-all-of-history conflict, this life-and-death battle waged for half a century without a shot being fired between the two adversaries, this Cold War had to begin sometime. But when? If the two opponents in this nuclear standoff had never really been friends, at the start of the Cold War, they had not only never faced each other as enemies, but they were in fact allies. The big three, Stalin's Soviet Union, Churchill's Great Britain, and Franklin Roosevelt's United States of America, had together formed the alliance that had taken down both Germany and Japan. They had fought side by side for three years. Britain and Russia, who'd been playing what was charmingly called the great game for control of Europe for hundreds of years, had been at war with each other only in the Crimea 90 years earlier. But all three countries had slogged through the mud together in World War I. So how could this happen? How could three countries, allies, through the two most horrific wars in human history, find themselves facing each other for a third war 
with incalculably greater stakes. What had changed? Well, Russia had changed. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Did the Cold War actually start on March 15, 1917, when Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the Romanov throne that had ruled Russia for 300 years, launching the Russian Revolution? Did it begin eight months later, when the first revolution, a sloppy, badly run but liberal series of humane government reforms under Alexander Kerensky, was replaced when Vladimir Lenin and his ruthless Bolsheviks tore power away from the Kerensky government in the 10 days that shook the world and launched the second revolution, the October Revolution, that brought communism to Russia's brutalized people? Or... Did the Cold War begin even earlier, in the heart of the First War, when Imperial Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II risked a throw of the dice and delivered the virus of Lenin and his Bolsheviks on a sealed train through Germany and into Russia in order to bring down the Tsar and remove Russia from World War I? A decision that the Germans would sorely regret when Lenin's communist descendants threw Germany back into Berlin two decades later during World War II. And if World War III, the Cold War had been born in the ashes of World War II? Had not World War II been an inevitable result of the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I? Is it possible that distant history will view all of this nuance as nonsense, concluding that Wars I, II, and III were really just one catastrophic conflict with timeouts for rearmament and recruitment? You know, read that way, did the war that ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 actually begin on June 28, 1914? with the bullets fired from the pistol of Serbian anarchist Gavrilo Princip into Crown Prince Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austrian Empire, lighting the spark that exploded the powder keg of Europe and launched World War I. I suppose you could make a case for these and other dates. It's not easy to find the beginning of a war that never fired a single shot. But if I had to pick a date, I think the best candidate would be June 19, 1948, when the Soviet military blocked Western access to Berlin, which lay within the Soviet zone of occupation. The Cold War began where it ended 41 years later. The Cold War began and ended in Berlin. Now, in this 10-part series, we'll look at this half-century of nuclear nightmares from start to finish, from its beginning with the Berlin airlift, 12 years before the wall was even built, and on through the following five decades. Korea, the Cuban Missile Crisis. In Cuba itself, 100,000 men were put under emergency orders as they had been during past invasions. Soviet invasions in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, Vietnam. The promise of detente, which looked to be a way out from living in the shadow of the mushroom cloud, but in the end was, at best, the seventh inning stretch. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Then through Reagan and Thatcher, Soviets in Afghanistan, a Polish pope and an electrician in Gdansk, Glasnost and Perestroika, Star Wars in Reykjavik, the fall of the wall, and the biggest Christmas present of all time, 
If we're going to travel past these epic milestones and ride the historical rail, which started in 1948 and ended in 1991, we have a choice, and that choice is a simple one. Do we want to look forward, or do we want to look back? Now, trains have been common throughout Europe, and in a train, you often find yourself facing to the rear, into the past, watching landmarks and events flash past and then slowly recede into the distance. And while I did spend eight years in Bermuda as a boy, the fact is, I didn't grow up in Europe riding on a train. I grew up in America driving a car, and cars go forward. That track of history is not a rail, but an endless highway converging on the future. And I'm not Russian but I married one, so in the interest of honesty and as a confession of bias, I'm going to exert the highest effort I can to be as fair as possible when I talk about what we saw during the Cold War, but ultimately, it will be a story of how this history looked from the West. If you look at it all with an open mind, hopefully at the end of this series you will have gained some new perspectives on things that seemed completely opaque at the time. But I think that even if we were to achieve the historically impossible, a perfectly balanced and unbiased retelling of this story, there would be little doubt that not only did one of these two antithetical systems prevail in the end, it was the one that deserved to prevail in the end. And as an American, I assumed that I would tell the story more or less from the American point of view, but what I found out as I wrote it was that I was spending more and more time with the Russians. I was spending time with the Russians because no one had heard that side of the story. And also, what was going on in Russia is almost beyond imagination. We're gonna tell this story going forward, but in order to do that, we're gonna to have to go back to the starting line because it's hard to know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. So let's set the dials on the Wayback Machine for June 19th, 1948, and then push the button, Frank. Lenin, Trotsky, Molotov, Stalin, all of them pseudonyms, names invented by the men who bestowed them upon themselves. These were the founding fathers of the Russian Revolution. And since the thesis of this entire What We Saw adventure is that whatever was on one side of the Berlin Wall was a negative image of what was on the other side, it bears mentioning that while the American Revolution began with the collection of prominent citizens boldly, and in the case of John Hancock, brazenly, signing their real names to a declaration of independence, the Russian Revolution was born of men constantly on the run from police, wearing disguises as they were smuggled in and out of secret safe houses, men whose real names were known to the Tsar's secret police. Unlike the proud, prominent, and successful Americans of 1776, the Russians of 1917 were unknown students, radicals, outlaws, men robbing banks and naming themselves after romantic figures in revolutionary literature, or more likely, intellectuals sitting in cafes in France and Switzerland, endlessly dicing and parsing and debating political theory. Theory, theory, always theory. Marxists, Leninists, Trotskyites, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, Zinovites debating Bukharinism, sharing safe houses, sharing wives, engaging in passionate screaming matches that sometimes ended with fistfights in basement cellars and all of it a very, very long way from the reasoned and disciplined appeal to logic and practicality among the most famous men in the country openly finding entirely different answers in a public hall in Philadelphia. So, who were these men? Well, one of them 
Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, a man who called himself Lenin, a failed lawyer who watched an idealized older brother hanged in front of his eyes by the Tsar's secret police after refusing to ask for clemency. Lev Davidovich Bronstein, a brilliant, arrogant student who against all odds would become a kind of military genius who virtually co-ran the revolution with Lenin under the alias Leon Trotsky. Vasyshlav Mikhailovich Skorabin, a dour, humorless apparatchik capable of prodigious amounts of work and who'd named himself Molotov, the hammer. And, of course, Joseph Vizarianovich Jugasvili, a former choir boy from the Caucasus with a badly crushed arm and the ravages of smallpox written forever across his face. An utterly ruthless, utterly paranoid, low-level strongman calling himself Koba, constantly pursued by the Okhrana, the Tsar's secret police, who arrested him seven times, exiled him six times, and who had escaped, essentially, walking out of Siberia five times before meeting his idol, Lenin, his nemesis, Trotsky, his lieutenant, Molotov, and finally changing his name yet again to Stalin, the Man of Steel. Now, these are the names that most people know. But to understand the Soviet Union, to really get in your bones what life in Soviet Russia was really like, you have to go to other names. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Dzerzhinsky, Yagoda, Yezhov, Beria. The Cheka, the GPU, the NKVD, the MGB, the KGB, endless rebranding of the same dreaded Soviet secret police through which the Russian people would be ruled, intimidated, and pacified through the years using the only real weapon that these revolutionary intellectuals really knew how to wield. That weapon was terror. If we're to start the Cold War in 1948, it would be incomprehensible to understand everything that followed without understanding these men, these names, and some locations as well. In the heart of modern Moscow stands Lubyanka Square, the highlight of which is the central children's store. It's made of yellow brick with soaring arched windows lit with smiling cartoon bunnies and teddy bears and elves. Inside is children's heaven. If Santa had owned a factory instead of a workshop, this is what it would look like on Christmas Eve as the reindeer were being harnessed to the sled. But just across the street from children's heaven is adult hell. And this one is not make-believe. It was and remains a very cruelly real structure. No one knows exactly how many people were shot in the back of the head from the basement of the building across from the toy store, but it certainly was not less than 10,000 human beings and likely very many more. This was the Lubyanka proper, the building the square had been named for. Bright yellow and cheery in the summer sunshine if you look it up on Google Maps today. Designed in 1897 and expanded in 1940, this neo-baroque structure looks like a Saris office building, and that's exactly what it was. The gray granite base of the Lubyanka is two stories tall. The main structure shows an additional five rows of windows, but during the Cold War, Soviet citizens said that the Lubyanka was the tallest building in the world because you could see Siberia from its basement. 
Today, out in front of the Lubyanka, there's a low mound covered with flowers on the Google Maps view. But for the duration of the Cold War, this mound was the base of a large statue of Iron Felix, Felix Zerzhinsky, founder of the Cheka, an acronym for the All-Russian Extraordinary Commission. Just as the Soviet state was collapsing in 1991, a construction team in the middle of the night ripped Iron Felix down from his pedestal in front of the office building, which is to this day the home of the FSB, the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation. You know, in Russia today, there is a petition to restore the statue of Felix Zerzhinsky to its rightful place outside of this Lubyanka building, and that petition is gaining momentum. As for my personal opinion, I say put the statue back. If you're not willing to tear down this mass murder factory, then at the very least, you should restore it to its original condition. Zerzhinsky was Lenin's right arm. The Cheka was Lenin's lever, his bludgeon, really. And the Lubyanka, just across from the toy store today, was a place of abiding terror for the entire duration of the Soviet Union. In the basement, for decades, innocent Russian civilians who'd been arrested on no more than a glance or a whisper were kept packed shoulder to shoulder in large cells holding perhaps 50 people each from the looks of it. Every night, the doors to those cells were opened and a list of names were called. Every night, the person named would step out into the hallway and then be led down an unpainted unplastered corridor where Russian martial tunes were played on a phonograph at ear-splitting levels, not so much to cover the gunshots as to suppress the sound of the screaming. Stripped naked, groups of six people at a time were walked through pools of freezing water and stood on wooden duckboards facing wooden doors covered with bullet holes. Some would be arguing, some would be cursing the Czechists in their leather trench coats, some trying to bargain with them. Very few of them struggled or tried to run away. None of it mattered, and they all knew it. They were stood up in front of six men with revolvers, facing away from them toward the door directly in front of each one of them. Families or couples that were brought in together would often hold hands. Sometimes complete strangers would as well. Then a seventh Czechist would raise a stick, and as he brought it down, six revolvers would fire, aiming for the back of the neck. The six pale white bodies would collapse into the freezing water. A cart on rails would be brought forward and the six bodies heaped onto it. The cart would then trundle back to a different part of the basement, where hemp ropes would be tied around their feet, and they would be hoisted up, one at a time, two sweating men heaving on the pulley to a truck parked in the closed-off square behind the front of the building. Bodies would then be stacked like cordwood, and when the truck was full, a tarp would be thrown over the pile. Hands and legs sometimes poked out from underneath these truckloads, which were headed to open pits on the outskirts of Moscow. But this wasn't a bug, it was a feature. The Czechists and the people who'd made them wanted people to whisper about what they'd seen. Meanwhile, back in the basement, a man quickly hosed the blood from the wooden doors and rinsed most of the red from the water on the floor as six more naked, weeping people stepped dutifully forward and took their places facing the doors. Perhaps many of them wondered if these were the doors to their future. It would be appropriate if they'd done so. You see, there was nothing behind those doors except for the stone-cold walls of the Lubyanka. The doors were there to prevent ricochets from clipping the executioners. And so it went. 
night after night, year after year, as the enemies of the people met their revolutionary justice. Now, apologists for this system blame it on Stalin, but this was Lenin's work. His state could not function without the Lubyanka and Iron Felix. After Lenin died in 1924, Stalin led the Soviet Union through a massive modernization program, taking everything from the peasant farmers, including their seed corn. When the peasants resisted, Lenin, then Stalin, sent the Czechists out to the countryside where they immediately shot anyone found hoarding so much as a handful of grain. Stripped of absolutely everything in order to feed the workers of the new Soviet factories, millions of peasants slowly starved to death, but not before killing all of their cattle and horses in order to deny them to the secret police. And there were worse places than Lubyanka. Just a few miles to the northwest, hidden among an imposing wall, was what looks to the modern eye like a slum complex. This was Lefortovo Prison. This is where the more important political prisoners were sent for extended torture sessions. You simply did not say the word Lefortovo out loud. No, in fact, you didn't say anything out loud. That would only guarantee your passage from outside to inside. Long before Lenin and Iron Felix were born, during the reign of Catherine the Great, there lived an aging czarist aristocrat named Darya Saltakova, widowed at age 25 and inheritor of a vast estate just 10 miles to the south of Lubyanka Square. After many lonely years, she found herself a young lover, but when he ran off with a younger woman, Saltakova did not take it at all well. Certain of her immunity, she found she could freely indulge in some of her hobbies, which consisted of beating her serfs to death. Young women, mostly, some as young as 10 years old. For minor offenses, like an insufficiently polished floor, she might be temporarily sated by merely setting their hair on fire or dousing them with boiling water. Over the years, at least 138 of her servants were killed this way, all but three of them women. Her plan for torturing her male servants consisted of simply killing the women in their lives. One of her serfs had three successive wives killed by the blood countess. But she was untouchable. Everybody knew that. The Cheka was untouchable too. So were the GPU, the NKVD, the KGB. For 20 years prior to World War II, the residents of Moscow would stay awake at night staring at the ceiling. The organs of the government, the secret police, would generally raid a building in the dark of the night somewhere around 2 or 3 in the morning. These arrests became so commonplace that every single evening, people would stare at the ceiling and wait for the sound of those squat black police trucks, the Black Marias, to pull up outside and turn off their engines. Then more torture, as the creaky elevator slowly rose higher and higher. If it passed your floor, you could exhale at last and grab a few hours of sleep. In the morning, one of the apartments would be crudely boarded up. If you lived on that floor, you could tell who'd been taken to the Lubyanka or to Lefortovo by quickly discovering who was missing in the line outside of the floor's single toilet. And there were even worse places, places out beyond even Siberia, visible from the basement of the world's tallest building. Russia was cluttered with dots marking each of these places, which looked like ants scurrying across the map of the world's largest country. 423 of these dots would eventually be built, and here is what they would be called. GULAG, Главное управление лагерей. The acronym for the series of what were called main administration camps, the GULAG, were strung out like an island chain in what one of their residents, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, would refer to as the GULAG Archipelago. One of these dots 
just one, was located in Kolyma. Nobody knows how many people actually died in the gold mines at Kolyma. All agree that in winter, the temperature in and around the camp was the one place where by coincidence both Fahrenheit and Celsius scales happened to meet, and that is at 40 degrees below zero for each of them. Initial estimates of 3 million people killed at Kolyma alone were no doubt too high. The lowest well-researched figure is 500,000, and the actual total most likely was around 800,000. That means Kolyma is almost certainly tied for second place with Treblinka at 800,000 dead on the leaderboard from hell. It is unlikely, but entirely possible, that the total death in this worst island of the 423 in the Gulag Archipelago exceeded the 1.1 to 1.6 million people killed at Auschwitz. No one's ever heard of it, because unlike with Auschwitz and Treblinka and Belzec and Sobibor, there are no pictures that survive from these death camps that could be seen from the basement in the building that still stands across from the toy store. I'm telling you all of this because you will never understand the east side of the wall unless you understand a people who are more afraid of what's on their own side of the wall than they are of what's on the other. Things were different on the western side of the wall when the Cold War began in 1948. To understand just how different, consider some of these numbers. Russia, by far, suffered the most casualties in World War II. Some 25 million people killed. That's almost 14% of the population at the beginning of the war. And Russia was a victor in that war. Only Poland suffered more per capita misery. 17% of all Poles alive in 1939 had been killed by 1945. Germany, with 7 million killed, had lost 8% of her population. Japan, with 2.8 million, had lost 4%. Now, contrast those numbers with those of Great Britain and the United States, both of which had bled and died to win the war, and both of whom had suffered terrible losses in that most terrible of wars. 450,000 British died in World War II, as well as 420,000 Americans. That means that Great Britain lost a little less than 1% of their total pre-war population, and the United States lost one-third of 1%. Of the two superpowers that would go on to fight the Cold War, one of them, the Soviet Union, had lost 44 times as many people as a percentage of total population than did the United States. First, and let us remember those who will not come back, their constancy and courage in battle their sacrifice and endurance in the face of a merciless enemy. Let us remember the men, the women, and all the services who have laid down their lives. We have come to the end of our tribulation, and they are not with us at the moment of our rejoicing. And then let us salute in proud gratitude the great host of the living who have brought us to victory. Aside from the countless personal tragedies that so many American families had to bear, the fact remains that in 1948, the United States stood so far above the rest of the world, both economically and spiritually, that it doesn't really seem fair to place it on the same planet. Just a few months before the Soviet Union denied access to West Berlin, the Marshall Plan had gone into effect. Through the Marshall Plan, the United States spent $12 billion to rebuild the ruined nations of Europe. That's about $100 billion in today's money. Russia, however, declined the offer, although they desperately needed it. Churchill's Iron Curtain had already come down. 
Britain, which had thrown out Churchill's Conservative Party along with Churchill himself, had put in its place a socialist government. So while Germany used the money to build new factories, the UK spent most of it on things like heavily subsidized housing and free prescription eyeglasses. It would be well, well into the 1950s before Britain could be said to have recovered from this post-war catastrophe. And while the full prosperity of post-war America would have to wait until the 1950s to fully hit its stride, in 1948, the United States was the unchallenged master of the sea with 1,200 ships, including 27 aircraft carriers. The brand new United States Air Force had just broken the sound barrier a few months earlier when a drawling West Virginia pilot named Chuck Yeager, who shot down five German aircraft in a single day, took the Bell X-1 supersonic in the skies over the Mojave Desert. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Another historic highlight in the aerospace age. October 14, 1947, Edwards Air Force Base, California. Captain Charles E. Yeager flew the experimental X-1 faster than the speed of sound in level flight. First man in the world to accomplish this feat. The Air Fighter Force jets had arrived. The F-80 shooting star was four years old. It wasn't a good fighter, but there was no way to know that yet. But these were just toys. Because the United States Air Force had the long-range, state-of-the-art B-29 Superfortress, and it had a lot of them. There was no other airplane like it in the world. And while Stalin's Red Army had thousands and thousands of tanks and artillery pieces and millions of troops lined up on the east side of the Iron Curtain, the United States had essentially just one thing on the western side to stop all of that. The United States had the atomic bomb. And more than that, the United States had shown that it was willing to use it. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. So, there they stood, facing each other for a full half-century, neither side ever able to understand the other because the historical lenses through which they viewed the world were trained in opposite directions. Soviet Russia had always been invaded, always, and had lost 27 million people in the biggest invasion since Napoleon, 129 years before when Moscow had burned to the ground. Now, aside from a few ineffective shells lobbed from a Japanese submarine against a Santa Barbara oil refinery and some minor unpleasantness in Washington during the short-lived and largely forgotten War of 1812, America had remained untouched. The idea of a foreign army marching through the United States being as inconceivable as the Russian idea of a foreign army not marching through its borders. Russia had an overwhelming psychological need for buffers, entire nations which would have to be overrun before the invaders could again touch the sacred soil of the Rodina, or Russian homeland. The United States hadn't the slightest need for either buffers or conquests. The two largest bodies of water on the planet protected America, and the very best land on the planet was already right at home, and plenty of it as well. 
Russia was inward-looking, suspicious and ruthless. America was outward-looking, trusting and naive. Each one thought the other had the same motives as themselves. And it would take 50 years for both sides to discover that each side's motives were the mirror image of the others, the inverse, the negative image of one another's strategies, plans, and ambitions. And so both sides stared across this great gulf, and all they could see of each other was the reflection of themselves. The Cold War, What We Saw, is written and presented by Bill Whittle. Produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer is Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our associate producer is Katie Swinnerton. Post-production producer, Alex Zingaro. Story producer, Jared Sachel. Edited by Matthew Scheller. Original music by Kyle Perrin. Audio recorded and mixed by Mike Coromina. Designed by Cynthia Angulo. The Cold War, What We Saw, is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright, Esoteric Radio Theater 2020. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.